Welcome to Supergirl's Attic. I'm Cycles. And I'm Vivi. And this is our companion episode for Deus Lex Machina, the 17th episode of Season 5 of Supergirl. And the topic we will be discussing is habits, routines, cycles, and addictions. So basically, actions which are repeatedly performed require minimal effort to enact and cause some kind or level of discomfort to stop performing. And I have a quote here from William James in his Principles of Psychology that says, habits are useful as means for conserving higher mental processes for more demanding tasks, but they promote behavioral inflexibility. Hmm. Which is kind of neat because we talked about the concept of functional fixedness Mm -hmm. back with Alex and her Martian weapon. And it's that same general kind of idea. Once you have a procedure in your mind for how to do something, you tend to follow that as opposed to exploring new ways to do things because it's quicker Mm -hmm. to just say, okay, I'll just do this thing this way because I already know how to do it. And that's kind of interesting because when we were talking about this topic, my thought immediately went to the very common phrase of saying that like humans are creatures of habit which came from a quote in a science fiction novel written about 100 years ago by one of the first early American science fiction authors. And it was written actually right around the time that psychology was emerging as a discipline and that people were starting to pay attention to human behavior, how that impacts the way we make decisions, and whether that was a conscious or an unconscious process. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of cool, especially looking at this episode and the way habits and like cycles of behavior were being expressed through Lex and through other characters because Lex specifically has talked about certain kinds of behavior-based psychology before. Mm -hmm. In season four, I think we explained the concept of behaviorism, which is a school of thought in psychology about how you study people. And Lex mentioned when he was training Red Daughter being an expert on psychological conditioning. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of funny because everybody has so-called bad habits like biting your nails or fidgeting when you shouldn't. But people also have bigger habits that they follow, like maybe you walk the same route to your school or to work every day or something like that. Mm -hmm. Sequences of actions. Yeah, like things that you do so often that they become second nature and you don't even think about them. That's why most of us can like successfully drive a car and also do other things at the same time. Yeah. In theory. (laughs) Although you shouldn't. (laughs) Don't text and drive. (laughs) But it's kind of interesting that this idea that we are creatures of habit, that we follow these familiar patterns, was conventional wisdom for a very long time before there was any way of studying it because naturally researchers have studied it in the century since then. And a lot of the results of that research confirm the idea that our habits make us easy to predict in terms of our behavior across a wide range of scenarios. There was a bunch of research that came out of MIT, Lena's alma mater, actually. (laughs) Um, One of the results was that 90% of what most people do on any given day follows routines so complete that you can predict their behavior with a few math equations. How very brainy of them. (laughs) Right? Yeah. But it's so consistent that it's formulaic. You can literally map out exactly what people will do at any given time during the day Mm -hmm. because so much of our day is repetitive. The other big thing to keep in mind is that we form habits based on the cues in our environment. And a lot of the time we are just reacting to what is around us, even if we don't necessarily realize that's what we're doing. 
And that is actually a lot of what we've seen from the major characters in the show this season, particularly with Kara not knowing what Lex is up to, but knowing it's something. And she's been coping with the ripple effects of what he's doing without knowing why. And so kind of related to that in terms of saying like we react to very subtle cues in our environment, you see this again with the scene at the end of episode 517 with the ad for the obsidian contact lenses when like it looks like the apocalypse is coming. People are just noping right out of there. (laughs) (laughs) And I definitely was one of those people who was like, why would you do that? Because as you've noticed, I'm very sensitive to that kind of stuff. And I was like, I wouldn't listen to an ad that told me what to do. Um, I mean, I tend to be pretty forgiving of the stuff they do in the show. And even I was like, uh. So yeah, a lot of people when they saw that scene were like, that's super unrealistic. However, I would like to point out that there is a huge still unfolding data scandal where the firm Cambridge Analytica actually spent the better part of the past decade experimenting in small countries with throwing political elections by using advertising to manipulate people's emotions about going to vote based on other associations between symbols and behaviors that they didn't even realize was happening. Mm. And they were able to actually suppress votes in specific minority ethnic groups and turn out higher votes in other groups. Mm. And like they were doing this on a widespread scale in multiple countries for the better part of five years. So as much as we'd like to think we are in control of our destiny and making all these decisions just based on ourselves, we are taking in a lot of information from a lot of places that actually affects and changes our behavior. Mm -hmm. And that's something that this episode and Supergirl more generally has been kind of delving into this season. Yeah. Although I would argue it's usually a little bit subtler than do this. <laughs> yeah. And then they do it. <laughs> it's like need to get away, use obsidian. <laughs> and I'm a little concerned about the people who busted out those contact lenses while they were like driving. <laughs> Speaking of things you shouldn't do while driving. Indeed. So you mentioned the scene in this episode with the obsidian contact lenses advertisement with relation to sort of predictable behavior. And it was said in this episode that Leviathan's goal is to get the population of Earth addicted to obsidian lenses. Some other sort of quick tie-ins to the topic of this episode are obviously Lex, who Cora questions Lex, a real hero, about, which cues us into the episode, showing Lex's attempts to control himself and to stop his patterns of behavior with relation to his anger toward Kryptonians. And it essentially asks the question, like, can people change with relation to this villainous character? We also saw a different little habit, which you've pointed out before, which is Kara fidgets with her glasses Hmm. in relation to certain emotional states or things that she's talking about. Yes. And we'll talk about that scene a little bit later. So for this episode, we'll be exploring patterns and habits, but also what encourages the disruption of patterns, which I'll be referring to as catalysts, and what encourages falling back into old patterns, cues. And cue here, we'll be using it to mean What triggers a behavior, both when a habit is in full swing, like when you're used to performing the habit and not trying to like kick it, but then also referring to cues as what may trigger you into performing the habit again after you're on the wagon, so to speak, and an obvious comparison, substance abuse and addiction and a cue for someone who is on the wagon would be like hanging out with 
friends that they would usually use or smoke or drink with. And that sort of triggers them into wanting to go back into that habit. So the cue tells your brain to go into an automatic mode and kind of let a behavior unfold. So we'll be asking whether or not you can control those sorts of urges. And this evokes to me the image of the sun eater, who essentially receives the cue of sun energy as food for it. And it pretty much unthinkingly goes to eat. It's not maliciously destroying the cities or even attacking like Kara and Jean and Magan when they attempt to stop it from eating. And it doesn't have a moral question of like, oh, I better not destroy the sun because there are other life forms who are using it currently. The action of eating doesn't require complex motivations. It just is. It's a cue response sort of cycle for the sun eater, which is not particularly rational. And so the sun eater is following this cue and letting the behavior unfold and eating. And then we see a literal explosive act as a catalyst to stop the behavior. So I thought that was a nice visual. <laughs> and with relation to the title of this episode, Deus Lex Machina. A nice pun, your favorite thing. Yes. <laughs> quite liked it. And it works on a few levels. We have the like literal meaning of this Latin phrase, God from the machine. And I believe they intended to relate to Lex as a person wishing to have control over all things like a god, also referring to his own mind and habits in this episode, and then the patterns of others, and then the cycle of life and death, which he has <laughs> defeated before, I suppose. Mm. It's relevant to what Leviathan is trying to do also. They're literally using machines to control people. Yeah. And then we discover in this episode that Gemma is a god of technology, literally. So god from the machine works out there. But Deus Ex Machina refers to a narrative tool. And it's essentially in a story, an unexpected power or event saving a seemingly hopeless situation, which I found to be sort of the ultimate disrupting external catalyst that throws everything out of whack and patterns can be disrupted. And we see that in this episode with another pretty impactful catalyst, which is the death of Jeremiah. And we see here that like death, trauma, and other kinds of shocks can throw routines out of whack, sort of disrupting present habits and also at times reintroducing old ones. A thing many of us might be familiar with currently. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, especially because you're going to talk about food in a minute. Mm, I am. Well, we see this happen with Alex a lot, actually. We know that Alex, at one point in her life, was like a party girl. She was regularly abusing alcohol, and she does not regularly do that presently. However, when there is some sort of traumatic or extremely upsetting event in her life, she will go back to that habit. There's sort of a cue of that same mm. feeling that she felt before of feeling lost. And then there's also the catalyst, which disrupts her current patterns. We see Alex in this episode, who is still sort of trying to wrap her head around the death of her father, question the presence of everyday cue response behavior. After there was such a life-disrupting event, she says, don't you think that it's weird that we're sitting here eating dumplings like everything is normal and yet Jeremiah is gone? 
So a catalyst, again, here, kind of like with the Sun Eater, makes the habit of eating more difficult to enact. And so for Alex, the action of eating goes from like a thoughtless habit of like picking up the food, putting it in her mouth and focusing on other stuff generally to then becoming overthought. She's like philosophizing about whether or not she should be eating. And the act of eating requires then more active effort. And I think eating requiring more effort is sort of a common response to a traumatic event, which is why we'll actually see the characters in Supergirl bring food to people who are stressed out about something. Mm. Or as we saw like in season three, when Kara was super under stress and upset, she just didn't eat. Mm, yeah. But we have Kelly Olson, The paragon of mental health. <laughs> yes. She says, the only permanent thing about life is that things change. The cycle of life goes on and you still need to eat. And she's basically directly referring to the cycle of life as in routines and patterns here. And we hear this concept of control come up in their conversation when Kara reads from the book that Alina gave her. And they basically decide as a group that not eating isn't going to bring Jeremiah back to life. So it's okay to give into your needs. And here they're having sort of a moment of accepting that they shouldn't control all of their habits because of this event in their life. And we will compare and contrast this relationship with control with the Luther family hmm. later on. And speaking of that book that Carr received as a gift, let's take a look at how Jeremiah's death has rippled out as a catalyst in other respects specifically cueing Lena to approach Kara. We have sort of the question of, are they breaking the cycle in this first scene that they share together or are they falling back into one? It's kind of a mixture of both. <laughs> yes. And this is an interesting moment for Kara because as we know, and by Kara's own admission, she is a creature of habit. She does not like change. No. In fact, she's expressed that she kind of hates it. Mm -hmm. Which is understandable. <laughs> it is understandable because she's been deeply traumatized by life-changing events. However, she still recognizes that change happens and sometimes there is nothing you can do about it other than adapt and move on. And so she's actually kind of doing both those things in the first interaction with Lena at Catco. We see Kara, on the one hand, trying to continue to follow this new path that she set in how she relates to Lena. But on the other hand, she's also falling into her own habits of dealing with grief and those two things are kind of at war with each other a little bit. Mm. For Kara, as we know, she's not a stranger to grief by any means. So in a lot of ways, Kara sort of becoming upset and then going off to be sad alone is probably sort of familiar for her. And we've seen her do that contemplative sort of temporarily isolating move. However, as Lena says, it doesn't ever get easier. And we see Kara actually look at a picture of Jeremiah and Eliza, which I thought was actually interesting because it's not a picture of the whole family together. Mm. She's looking at a picture of Eliza, which I thought was interesting because as we discussed in a recent video essay that we made, actually, Kara in Alex in Wonderland, the last episode of Supergirl, sort of took ownership over Eliza's well-being. And she referred to Eliza as our mother as opposed to Alex's mother, which was new. But we also discussed Kara's sort of irrational feelings of guilt about Jeremiah's death that go way back to their childhood, as we saw in Midvale. So I think that guilt in a way over Jeremiah's death here would be sort of falling back into an older habit. Mm. 
And it's interesting because like we saw on Midvale, Alex blamed Kara for Jeremiah's quote unquote death. And it was irrational because Kara couldn't have been responsible for Jeremiah's death. But then they found out that she was connected to it because he went to the DEO to protect her. And now eventually they're going to find out that Jeremiah was literally killed to get it Supergirl. Mm-hmm. Kara's one fear right there. <laughs> I know. So we see Kara here kind of fall back into the similar emotions to what she has felt before regarding grief. And then some other patterns play out in that same scene with Lena and Kara using behavioral scripts, which is, again, from the behaviorism approach to psychology that we've talked about before. And that's basically a sequence of expected behaviors for any given situation that is acquired through habit, practice, routine. So most of us don't realize it, but we learn a lot of scripts for lots of different social situations. And they are essentially interactions that follow a formula, just like a script for a television show. And we see that in this scene where Alina's coming over to offer her condolences. And they're both using this kind of social convention, this script for how to behave, to kind of smooth over the fact that things are really awkward for the two of them at the moment mm -hmm. because they've had this whole huge fight and there's a lot of accusations, a lot of misunderstandings and not a lot of real communication to kind of clear things up. And it's fun to watch in the sense that Kara, as a literal alien, in some cases really likes scripts because they are clear rules for how human behavior should go that she can predict and figure out how to navigate. And in situations where she needs to deflect suspicion from the fact that she is an alien, she sometimes will take advantage of that mm -hmm. in her kind of day-to-day -day life. But then she's less sort of practiced at other kinds of scripts, like fun things like dating and things that are riskier in a way and that she has less experience with mm. than, say, deflecting people from suspecting that she is an alien. Or coping with grief. Yes. <laughs> a thing she is an expert She's at. She's more <laughs> practiced with coping with grief than she is dating. <laughs> Which is horrible, but true. Yes. This scene was really nicely done on all the technical levels because you had a lot that was being said through behavior as opposed to through dialogue. So the script of what they're literally saying is conveying one message about what's happening and it's a very straightforward one. Lena, who lost a parent, feels bad for Kara, who just lost a parent unexpectedly and wants to say like, hey, I get how that feels. It sucks. And as your friend and I am sad for you. <laughs> However, she can't just say that because there's been all this weird stuff that's been mm -hmm. happening. And so you see a lot of that expressed through their body language. They're both very tense. Kara especially is very closed off. There's even like physical objects separating her from Lena and she mm. takes advantage of that. You also have the way that they're positioned in the conversation and the physical space that they are in. They're on Kara's turf. They're at her her desk at Catco. Kara is seated. She's kind of in a more protected position. Lena's kind of just like standing there in the open part of the office, a little bit more exposed and kind of vulnerable mm -hmm. to anyone who happens to walk by, like her creeper brother, who we yes. find out is watching <laughs> from across the room. But you also see Lena following the rules of this kind of interaction. She's brought a token of friendship, of condolence. And the book that she gives Kara is something that's emotionally significant to her 
her, but it's also relevant to what is happening to Kara. And so she's saying, here, I want to share this with you mm-hmm. without specifically using it to get like something tangible in return, which is a little bit different than what we maybe <laughs> have seen in the past. Particularly this season. Yeah. Well, and also I'm thinking of like that one scene in season two where she comes to say like, oh, I'm sorry, you're sick. But then she wants to grill Kara about James. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then you also have some really nice use by the actors of kind of tone of voice, pitch of the voice, mm. whether they're being, you know, very clipped and short with their words or not. And you also see both Kara and Lena choosing very carefully what things they want to say out loud about where they stand and then what things they're each maybe choosing to censor and avoid. Mm-hmm. Yes. So let's go through that scene. They hit several familiar notes in their conversation in terms of scripts for them in particular as well and the way things usually go in their relationship. But as you mentioned, Carr is way more reserved than she would be ordinarily. So the beginning of their interaction adheres to a classic script for them. Kara hides the picture that she's looking at as Lena approaches, which is not out of character for her. And then Lena says, I came to offer up sympathies. But then we see a divergence from the normal script for them in that Kara doesn't respond. She averts her eyes and keeps her face mostly blank. Mm. Yeah, the way Lena reacts is interesting because Kara's not meeting her expectations for how the interaction should go. Lena is here making a gesture of reconciliation, demonstrating that she has at least thought about the things Kara said to her since the last time they interacted. But Kara's not automatically rewarding her for that. She's not Mm -hmm. responding and saying, okay, now we can be friends again. She really is holding back a lot. Mm -hmm. And Lena's not quite sure what to do from there. Yeah. So she offers up a sort of alternative cue to kind of get her to follow the script that she was expecting. And she uses a self-deprecating joke, which is classic for her. Think of Luther's don't have friends, we have minions (laughs) and the like. And she says, I sound like an android. And Kara does kind of respond a little bit more. She bites and offers up reassurance in the face of this self-deprecating joke that Lena gives and takes some personal responsibility. She says, no, you sound like someone who's afraid to confront the woman who called you a villain, which is in line with how it's gone this entire season with Kara sort of taking the blame. But it's also interesting that she doesn't really apologize for it here, which is new. Yeah. What Kara's doing is essentially reflecting Lena's feelings out loud. It's a very good trick of someone who is an empathetic listener. And Mm -hmm. she's basically stating a fact. She's saying, you know, you feel the way you feel because I said this thing that was uncomfortable, but she doesn't say she's sorry for saying it. So Mm -hmm. that was fun. Yeah. But the script has started going here and, and Lena continues and offers empathetic support. Which is progress. Bakara, as it's happening, is like clenching her jaw and averting her eyes, even as she goes through the sort of script of thanking Lena. Which is not to say it's not genuine in a sense, but there's also a lot that she's not saying. Mm. And her walls are definitely up and she's more uncomfortable than she used to be. Yeah. Well, and also, too, this is a place where you're seeing Kara's natural inclination of wanting to be alone with those intense grief 
feelings mm. and Lena followed her. So <laughs> it's not a moment where Kara was really in the mood to be having this conversation. So you see her really behaving in a way where she's recognizing that Lena's making an effort, but she's trying to also just like put an end to everything, mm-hmm. but in a much nicer way than she would put ends to conversations with Alex in season three when Alex was trying to make her talk about her feelings. So, <laughs> yes. Well, Kara was definitely in a different place also. Yeah. <laughs> But she says thank you in a very final conversation ending way. But Lena has one more thing to do, which is give Kara the book. And there's a moment where they feel sort of closest to how they used to be when they were friends. Lena refers to her family difficulties and Kara jokes about the Luthers in response, which is something that they used to do a lot. And they have a moment where they smile at each other, which is in line in terms of a script, but also felt more relaxed than they had been mm. for the rest of the scene. But then Kara, it's kind of like she remembers and withdraws again and averts her eyes and finally ends the conversation with another thank you. Yeah. And so for Kara, who does not like change very much, we do see her sticking to her resolve and the recognition that she made in episode 13 this season of the role that she has played in making this friendship go off course, but also in recognizing that she can't keep letting Lena's mistakes or decisions go just for the sake of the comfort of that friendship, that relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Melissa Benoist directed this episode and she talked a little bit about the scene and said that there's a lot of subtext there, which is true. And she says their tentativeness is concealing a lot and I don't even know if they know how they feel. They miss each other. They miss that friendship and that comes through in the scene, as we just talked about. But there's still anger. What's also not being said in that scene is that they're not ready to forgive. And so Kara's still angry, which is kind of, it's nice to see her be angry about how things fell apart with them, as opposed to just Mm. mourning. It's nice to see her be angry, (laughs) period. (laughs) Yeah. And it was maybe different than we might have expected in that she didn't try to go, like, become Lena's friend again Mm. and didn't want in that moment to go back to the way things were before. And then we see in the same episode that there's an eventual sort of confirmation to Kara that she was right not to fully trust that things have changed when Lena enters the fortress. It's sort of the same cycle of behavior of sort of reconciliation and then Lena being upset about Supergirl's actions and taking it personally. But this time, Kara doesn't apologize for it. Kara doesn't even really address it. <laughs> she's, <laughs> yeah, she's just like, <laughs> she's a little bit busy. <laughs> I'm a little busy trying to find dozens of missing, possibly dying people. <laughs> There's a fatigue that occurs because she recognizes that this is a pattern of behavior. And it's interesting to see in terms of habits and, and breaking them, how that kind of fatigue and recognition that things are not changing can be itself a catalyst for change. Mm-hmm. But in terms of Lena's point of view in this episode and the journey she goes through, there's sort of a one step forward, two steps back cycle here. As we've mentioned, the biggest catalyst in this episode for breaking out of patterns was Jeremiah's death and the ripple of effects that that had. Mm, And they were myriad, what? (laughs) (laughs) It breaks Lena out of her sort of self-focused patterns of reasoning that she's had for quite some time in the season. And we see her actually employ an emotionally intelligent tactic of referencing your own experience so that the person you're talking to knows that you kind of understand, but in a way that isn't competitive with regard to loss Mm -hmm. and how much suffering that like you've experienced as opposed to them which is you know a break from 
the patterns that she's been sort of stuck in. But then we also see Lena experience a kind of cue inviting her into old habits in that she sees Kara being upset and walking away to go to be alone. And she goes back to the patterns of friendship that we just discussed. And it's kind of reminiscent of what we saw her do in season three when Kara was sad and in both cases at work. True. So we do actually see Lena make a little bit of growth in this episode a little she's not there yet but she's getting there mm-hmm. and i think given the right additional catalyst she'll get there <laughs> but in terms of talking about cycles of behavior that are bigger than just like a casual habit I, we've talked about this before with lena as the victim of emotional abuse and as someone who is trying to break a family cycle of abuse mm-hmm. i feel like she is being portrayed realistically in that sense because it is a lot of one step forward two steps back because it is hard yeah. to get away from those patterns that have been ingrained in you since you were very young especially when you are back surrounded by those people and in that environment mm-hmm. but we do see evidence at the start of this episode that she did hear what Kara was saying as much as she was angry about it. (laughs) She maybe deep down has recognized that kind of like how Alex says in season one that there was some truth maybe to what Kara was saying to her and (laughs) that she needs to make up for it somehow. And so she's trying, but she doesn't know how. (laughs) Because the Luthers don't apologize for things, <laughs> and they certainly don't talk out their problems. So, <laughs> Yeah, she, um, she doesn't have a script for that. No, she really doesn't. And it's kind of funny when you consider that she's from this family that's so socially connected and so poised and has, you know, a plan for every scenario, but she has no idea what she is doing here. Mm -hmm. And she is trying to figure it out by taking her cues from a literal space alien (laughs) (laughs) who has like no context for human social rituals, but whose strength is emotional experience. Expression. And mm. so watching them both uncomfortably try to find that balance is fun. Yes. <laughs> well, for Lena, her feelings are her like Achilles heel. And for Kara, their feelings are her greatest strength. So it works out in terms of <laughs> her dynamic. Well, in some ways, though, the thing with Lena, it's almost kind of like the way the VR was trying to manipulate Alex in the past episode where it was like, don't dive too deep into those feelings. How are you feeling? And it was like the emotions were actually the thing that needed to be expressed in order to be liberating. And Mm. Lena, very similarly, is always in this environment where her feelings are suppressed and she's not given appropriate ways to express them or she's only encouraged to express certain emotions. And so she has no framework for what to do with any of the rest of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, And that's really where she's struggling right now is like she knows she did something. She's not really sure what it is <laughs> because in her worldview, she wouldn't know what it is. And she's never been in a position where, like, she could apologize and the other person would, like, genuinely accept and forgive her. So yeah. it's wild uncharted territory for her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned how in the Luther family, feelings in general are frowned upon. <laughs> We see the concept of Lena becoming friends with Kara and making amends as 
Lex's biggest fear that ends up trumping <laughs> all of his other fears and goals in the episode. Well, it's not literally that like Lena making a friend is the thing he fears the most <laughs> in the world just on its own. It's the domino effect that that will have on all the rest of his plans. <laughs> yeah. I love the way he said it. He said first it's an apology, <laughs> then it's coffee before work, and then the next thing you know they're playing Pictionary. He's so jealous. And then he yells, that cannot happen. <laughs> I know. The absurdity of it. It's so it's like all these mundane things and he's outraged, which we'll talk about more in a minute. But yeah, I have to say, I actually really appreciated that moment because we've talked about like game night. Yeah. Being really important to To Kara specifically. But yeah, this group of friends and, and connecting them emotionally and tying them together, like spending time with each other and trying to have fun. And, and it's a very optimistic and connecting activity. But it, it's also just a game. <laughs> so it's really interesting to see like Lex Luthor, the villain, yell that his sister can't play Pictionary <laughs> and it actually have like logical impact. And we understand what that means. Doesn't it make that scene where Lena asks James to practice playing board games hurt like so much worse. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Because she doesn't have a script for any of this. (laughs) No, it's also it's amusing me a little bit because I had a culture and organizations course that I took years ago where the professor intentionally socially engineered opportunities for people to interact. And it was like mundane. You wouldn't have thought it was anything. But on the first day of class, he brought in homemade bread and shared it with everyone. But then we had to sign up every week. Someone had to bring a snack before class. Hmm. And on the last day, he was like, so did you know why I did that? It was so that you'd have a reason to make friends with each other. Very wholesome. (laughs) Well, yeah, but there's a huge principle in psychology. The people that you cross paths with the most are the people that you're most likely to start engaging with. Mm -hmm. And then doing shared activities gives you more opportunities to like bond on an emotional level. So yeah, relationships are very much habit. (laughs) Yes. But on the one hand, Lex is right in that he recognizes the threat that is being posed here. Mm. And he hates it both for the fact that it's Kara, who is a Kryptonian. And I think also he kind of hates it because that means that he can't control Lena anymore. So (laughs) yeah. So Lex ends up basically offering up kind of in the way that your professor did a cue for a behavior to target sort of a different habit of Lena's and kind of get her back into the same pattern that she had been before this day. And that cue is essentially manufacturing perceived betrayal or hypocrisy on Supergirl's part. And we have the cue and then we have the response of black and white thinking. Lena having difficulty perceiving the nuance in a situation. Well, and in this particular situation, she is being very deliberately forced to look at it with blinders on so that she doesn't see the nuance. (laughs) Mm, Yes. And it's interesting because she perceives Kara as having a habit of blaming a Luther. She refers to it as her default position. Yeah, except that when they met, Carl literally defended Lena to Clark. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, that's it's directly connected to how Lena views everything and what she deep down expects everyone around her to think of her. <laughs> It's a very Luther way of thinking. (laughs) So she accuses Carr of having a habit when it is, in fact, that Lena has this habit of taking things very personally. Well, and assuming that things are being done to deliberately affect her. And honestly, given that her whole family is conspiring to do all these weird, crazy things specifically (laughs) to get at her, it's not an unfair assumption. (laughs) 
Like, <laughs> yeah, but her whole childhood and adulthood now has trained her to expect that of people. Yeah. It's not entirely irrational, but it's also her not seeing Kara for who Kara is. Mm -hmm. She calls her two-faced. And Melissa, again, had a nice quote with regard to this scene when she said that this represents a major component of why their friendship broke the way it did. It wasn't just because Kara didn't tell Lena the truth for so long, but because Lena didn't understand that it was to keep everyone around her safe. And so another sort of response that we have to this cue of perceived betrayal is Lena's tendency to then attack usually Supergirl in response. Although there is a season three example that comes to mind when Similarly, her attempt to comfort Kara does not proceed the way that she expected. Yeah, well, that was an interesting contrast because that scene also takes place at Catco, but the power dynamic in it is different because at this point in time, Lena owns Catco. She is Kara's boss's boss. Mm. And as soon as Kara shuts her down and says, I don't want to talk about my feelings at work, which is like Kara following a script of, if I say that, people will leave me alone and we're done. Yeah. <laughs> Lena's like, well, then let me pick apart all of your flaws as my employee and threaten you because you shut me down and I'm taking it personally, mm. as opposed to recognizing like, oh, this is a thing that it is difficult for you to talk about. I will leave you alone until later. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's not like she was exactly wrong to confront Kara generally about not doing her job, because as we know, yeah. that was a problem in season three. <laughs> it just wasn't actually a calculated move on Lena's part, like for the benefit of Kara or for the benefit of Katko. No, it was a very emotionally driven knee-jerk response to being rebuffed for something that was completely not connected to that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it was Lena leveraging what power she had to kind of control the situation and maybe get Kara to eventually respond to her mm. by saying, okay, if you're going to be what I think is mean to me, then I'll be mean to you <laughs> until you give in. <laughs> like, um, I mean, it works for the Luther siblings. Why wouldn't it work for anyone else? <laughs> well, speaking of the source of some of these patterns, let's take a look at the other Luther yeah. Lillian was in this episode. She was. I always find her delightfully evil. <laughs> they leaned really hard into making her look like Dolores Umbridge from the Harry Potter series in this. The pink, she was drinking tea at her desk with the little cups. Yes. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> Perfect. And we've talked about on this podcast how Lillian displays the characteristics of someone with narcissistic personality disorder. And with relation to the topic of this podcast episode, Lillian is a person is very controlled and her focus is very much on controlling herself and controlling her image time back into that narcissism. And we saw this before with the Lillian of Earth 38 before the Earths merged. In Lena's story of when Lex was arrested, she described how when Lillian's son was taken away, she calmly made his bed, which is very much an act in keeping up appearances, both emotionally and not reacting outwardly and also smoothing things over to be presentable. And she very likely began plotting how to manage the Luther reputation, eventually deciding, I think, to change the way the world saw Kryptonians mm. to fix it. True. And then on this Earth, this timeline, Earth Prime, Lillian says that on this planet, the Luthers are cool-headed. We plan, we implement, and we rise, which is so Slytherin. <laughs> It is very strategic. And she also says when Lex mentions that he's not the Lex that she knew, when essentially she's informed that her son has died, 
that the past is the past, best to focus on the future, which reads like a quote from the book Lena gave Cara, but, <laughs> but isn't <laughs> sinister. Yeah. So she is in some sense resilient, but she is very much concerned with her reputation and the image of the Luthers. And she does experience a fear of consequences. People with narcissistic personality disorder can experience like shame, which is a very public based emotion. That's also a very base emotion that you typically start experiencing by age two. <laughs> mm. And she also experiences a bit of empathy. And we know that Lillian said to Lena that she loves her and she was telling the truth. But that's not something I can picture Lex saying and meaning about anyone that he loves them. No, definitely not. But Lillian is capable of that. But we also know that Lillian controls it. She was not happy about having to tell Lena that she loves her. And she tries to get others to behave similarly, particularly mm the other Luthers, because that's directly tied to her image and her ego. And in this episode, she seeks to control Lex. Good luck. And she has tried to control Lena to preserve that status. But here, in a tone that kind of shows her hand, she says, I asked if you had the strength of will and you said, yes, mother, this is a display of weakness. And she sort of reveals how much stake she has in mm. how Lex behaves. If Lex fails, then her reputation is ruined. Everything with the Luthers starts to break down in the way that we saw with the other Earth. Lex displays both the characteristics of someone who is a narcissist and someone with antisocial personality disorder, as far as we can tell. And unlike Lillian, is more focused on controlling others as opposed to himself. However, he does share those narcissistic traits with with Lillian and displays a sort of cycle of narcissistic injury, which is like injury to the ego, narcissistic rage, which is acting out to eliminate the threat to the ego. Mm -hmm. And then that experience, like that restoration of his self-esteem. Which is actually interesting because that's very similar to like a cycle of abuse and the way abusers behave, just generally speaking. Mm -hmm. And so we see in this episode and all the time, Kryptonians are a threat to Lex's ego at that kind of injury. They sure are. <laughs> so he seeks to wipe them out and is very angry about it. And Lillian describes it corruptly as an obsession mm. and refers to it as falling off the wagon when he begins to plan specific attacks toward the Kryptonians. And so Lex sees the Kryptonians because of how powerful they are as a threat to him in terms of like being the man of tomorrow, like the best person on earth. <laughs> but we also see that Supergirl is a threat to his power to control Lena, her actions and patterns. And it's interesting because when he wakes up in this new reality, Earth Prime, he sees a poster of himself, Supergirl and Lena, the three of them sharing a poster as opposed to one of the other uh, like magazine covers that was just his face. But you'll note that he is front and center. Mm, that's true. But even sharing the space. Mm, that's true. He does not share well. <laughs> no. And he essentially goes and he runs immediately to Lena to control that relationship. And Lillian identifies that it was her friendship with your sister that spun you out. And Lex responds with, friendship and loyalty to Supergirl is what prompted Lena to kill me, which was a massive narcissistic injury. And as well as a literal one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that minor detail of being dead. The past is the past. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, so very quickly after Lex realizes that the world has been recreated through his vision, he makes a point to restore his position as the golden child of the family, Lillian's favorite. Partly because he wants that attention and that validation as he seeks to repair these injuries to his ego, landed not only by Lena and Kara, but also by Leviathan. But he also is coming to Lillian in a strategic move to make sure that she won't favor Lena over him. Because I think in the back of his mind, he is concerned that Mm -hmm. that's a possibility. Yeah. Well, we saw in the first episode on this new Earth Prime, Lena go pretty quickly to Lillian to discuss things and us wondering whether or not they would sort of team up. And then we ended up seeing Lillian standing next to Lex. So Mm -hmm. he was perhaps right to see that as a threat. But it's interesting in this episode how Lillian tries to control Lex and the tactic she uses, which is basically to challenge his ego and say, the question is, can you give up your pet vendetta and stay focused? And that he's like, are you really? Really querying my strength of will, mother. I'm a Luther. Like he's he's offended, angry, and he <laughs> he needs to prove that he is capable of doing that. Mm. But unlike Lillian, Lex has poor impulse control, which is interesting in terms of Lex displaying the traits of antisocial personality disorder because there's this difference in the autonomic nervous system and research suggests that people with APD don't have the same kind of fight or flight response instinctively. Hmm. So Lex doesn't fear consequences in the same way that we see Lillian fear them for the Luther name and he doesn't feel shame. So ultimately why should he control himself and why not just focus on controlling others to create the world that he wants to experience. I have to say, though, it was interesting to get to see them interact in a space where Lillian is critical of Lex in a more aggressive way, especially knowing that we've seen in the past Lex did not care for that Mm. at all to the point that he put out a hit essentially on Lillian. But I also thought of it because we saw the portrait of Mm. this Lillian, pink Lillian, (laughs) if you will, in a place of prominence in Lex's home. And my first thought was, well, what's it going to take before he's ready to stab out her (laughs) eyes too? Mm. Um, Well, maybe now Lena will switch to being the golden child. Maybe. In order to try to preserve the Luther name because she doesn't trust Lex as much. This is true, but the thing is, at the moment, Lena doesn't have any tangible assets to offer Mm. in terms of building the Luther name because Lex took all her achievements away from her. Yeah, that's true. But she did it before. (laughs) when Lex went to jail. She did. She did have the grit. So we'll see. But in terms of Lex, this was a neat episode in the sense that you see how his various plots are obscured from the rest of our main characters. And so it's hard to tell what's because of him. But when you see what he's doing, it becomes very obvious very quickly that his behavior is predictable and he is as much driven by habit and routine as any other person. Mm -hmm. So he likes to think he is a master of behavioral conditioning and maybe it's true because we saw the way he went about very methodically planning to control Red Daughter in season four and how he basically experimented on that with Lena throughout her entire childhood, Mm. which is super messed up. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And he was mostly successful at controlling and containing Red Daughter up until he hit the wall of like inborn personality traits that he could not get rid of through behavior conditioning because 
things like Kara's innate sense of compassion for others, her desire to help people, he really just couldn't override with cruelty in large part because he doesn't understand those emotions and therefore doesn't place as much significant value on them. It's also interesting because those are qualities that Lena does possess that make her different from the rest of her family. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to see how Lex has such an ability to control or influence people, but keeps hitting this wall that is very much directly tied to his faults as a person and like (laughs) not being able to control his rage and not being able to understand empathy. Yeah. Well, and it's also it's interesting because he's critical of Red Daughter in very similar ways to how Lillian is critical of him Mm. that we see here. And that made me think of there's one moment in the Red Daughter heavy episode from season four where she darts off to go like rescue somebody while he's yelling in the background like a Luther waits. (laughs) And does he though? (laughs) Does he really? Um, Because we got a really good look at Lex Luthor as a person in this episode. And it tied together a bunch of our podcast episode themes that we've already talked about this season, which was fun. (laughs) So for one, we see that Lex, like Kara, has a very high internal locus of control. Mm -hmm. He thinks that he can control what happens to him and around him. And as we see, he essentially is like a kid throwing a stone into a pond and then watching the ripples move. And that's how he manipulates other people. Mm. It's very kind of chess strategy-like. But the other thing that we see about him is that in terms of personality, he puts forward this exterior of a very cool, very collected, dispassionate, strategic mind. And that is not at all (laughs) how he operates. His actual strength in terms of personality and qualities he draws upon is an ability to improvise and to seize opportunities as they present themselves. He is not a planner. That's partly where he's different from Lena. So very different from a lot of our hero characters like Kara and Alex, Jean and even Brainy. Lex leans hard on a combination of his own intuition and thinking aloud, essentially. This is, you know, the big, grand, evil villain speeches. (laughs) They're not just him liking to hear himself talk. It's that he's actually going through the process of figuring out what he's going to do as he's talking. And then he's like, yes, I'm brilliant. And then he (laughs) he just does it. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I mean, he certainly has things in play for a long time. But he's most in his moment, as we see, when he has a stroke of genius, as he (laughs) refers to it, and can suddenly make a move as opposed to being cautious. (laughs) Yeah, Lena is cautious in part because her life experiences and her environment have taught her to be cautious. Whereas Kara can be quick to judge in a very similar kind of way, but the reasons are very different. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Like, not just in terms of, like, she's being pro-social as opposed to (laughs) anti-social, but just she's basing her impulse to do things on different kinds of data because she is so driven by her senses and the information she gets that way. Mm. Whereas Lex is just like, this idea, it came to me and it's going to work. And just (laughs) he, he just does it. Yes. But 
Lex is as much the product of his habits as any other person. And we see that in this episode. He is totally accustomed to behaving in certain ways or commanding certain authority and getting an expected set of results in response. We see that very clearly in how he's confident that if he talks to a person long enough in the right way, they'll do exactly what he wants them to. Hmm. And that's why... Being played by Leviathan and then being betrayed by Lena drove him so to the point of insanity that he literally rewrote the entire history of the world so that he could have a do-over and get revenge and ruin their lives. There is nothing mentally unhealthy about that at (laughs) all. When you fail, try and try again. (laughs) Well, yeah. Well, that's the other thing, too, when you were saying about how he maybe having an antisocial personality disorder, he is less risk averse than the average person Mm. doesn't necessarily have that fight or flight response when a threat occurs. (laughs) Or like when he gets shot. (laughs) Yeah. And it just goes on talking for like 10 minutes. Yeah. But it is reflected in how. He's not concerned about what'll happen if, like, one piece of a plan doesn't go the way I want it to, because he'll always find a new way. Like, he was super upset that his plan to kill Jeremiah Danvers made Lena decide she wanted to be friends with Kara again, but then he immediately was like, oh, here's a solution. (laughs) Yeah. And he was also upset, not because things changed, but because it hurt his ego. (laughs) Yeah, they changed in a way that he didn't expect. Yes. He was, like, insulted that someone dared to do something that he didn't know they were going to do. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. But speaking of control, we had some interesting Luther and Danvers slash, like, super femme contrasts in this episode. In relation to control, we had Kara, Alex, and Kelly sit and talk about how they didn't have control over whether or not Jeremiah died and saying like so eat the dumplings and then we have Lillian discussing how Lex has to control his anger toward Kryptonians and being pleased that he requested tea with no sugar which I thought was a nice summation of in terms of eating as a habit letting yourself do what you naturally want to do versus resisting any inclination like that. Mm. There were some other contrasts that came to light over the course of this episode that maybe weren't as obvious before, which was very cool. And some of that was definitely a function of the script, but I also wonder a little if it was a function of Supergirl being (laughs) behind the decision making on how to tell the story in this episode. Mm. Because we see it was a great scene with John Cryer of Lex waking up after the events of crisis Mm. where he's, you know, wrestling in the bed and the butler is standing there looking at him. (laughs) But he's waking up from a dream of him killing Kara and he's in an aggressive posture, like ready to fight as soon as he wakes up. And Kara was the same way. Mm. They both experienced like the same vision before they woke up and they both were in that same hypervigilant, like aggressive state and were lashing out physically when they woke up. The other thing that was kind of fun about it was they each woke up to their sister being present with them. In their home. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It was like a homey thing, like your closest relationship to someone. And the contrast there is (laughs) crazy because Kara is immediately like so glad that things were fixed and that Alex is alive. She Because Kara's the way that she was brought up where you say what you need to say to people, she immediately just like wants to make sure Alex knows how much she loves her. Mm. 
Whereas Lex is like, oh, my sister stayed here with me. Cool. I'm going to drug her and we'll deal with that later. <laughs> uh, and he's very much ready to get his like revenge plans in motion. There is mm. no love lost. He hasn't taken any moment to take perspective on why Lena might have decided to shoot him for the, the <laughs> of safety not. of the world. Uh, <laughs> Self-reflection. <laughs> from Lex. But that was just a really cool kind of fun mm. contrast there. And it also, the imagined fight that Lex and Kara were engaged in kind of gets to the heart of this struggle there of who is really in control of the post-crisis world because Lex clearly thinks it's him and that he's won because it was rewritten in his vision. <laughs> Kara knows absolutely that it's not her and she is not happy about this fact. <laughs> she's described it as a nightmare on multiple occasions. And so she has to rely on what she knows about Lex, his behavior, the habits that he has in order to try to guess what he might be doing. But she doesn't know the specifics. She knows enough about him as a person to be able to predict that he is going to, you know, like a cartoon villain, he is going to do something to get in her way at every turn, but she doesn't know what it is. Yeah. The other thing with Lex is like, he thinks he is in control. But as we see towards the end, when he tries to go push Gemma on following his plan for what Leviathan should do, he may not be as in control as he thinks he mm -hmm. is. And then we have Lena, who is like a child in the middle of an ugly divorce <laughs> custody battle, <laughs> trapped <laughs> between these two very different people and different worldviews. It's interesting because we have like, as you talked about, Lex thinking he's absolutely in control and then Kara knowing that she's not and not quite being happy about it. And Kara, with her internal locus of control, <laughs> hates feeling like she's not in control. Yeah, but it's interesting because we see Lena sort of present, I guess, a more peaceful outlook on not having control while she's in that sort of push and pull between Lex and Kara. In that book that she gives Kara, which is called Going on Being, Life at the Crossroads of Buddhism and Psychotherapy. An interesting choice, really. <laughs> yeah, I guess Alina won't see another person who's a therapist, but she'll read up on it, which tracks. <laughs> and Carr quotes this book saying, things are constantly in flux, arising and passing with each moment. We have no control. And it's interesting because Buddhists believe that we have the ability to control the self, to change our habits. And many of the habits that we should let go of concern the urge to control the external world. Mm, yeah, instead of yourself. Yes, which is actually advice that Lena could use right now, given her mm. plots. And so obviously for Buddhists, the idea of self-control is a natural and positive thing. But we also see in people like Lillian where it can go too far. Some kinds of self-control are good and others are more harmful and also depending on the level. And Lena in particular struggles with what kind of self-control to employ. So does she resist following the patterns of her abusive family dynamic or does she resist the urge to experience any emotions, friendship and love, all of which are against the Luther family motto. But let's take a look at some of the other characters that Lex is manipulating in this episode. We have Eve, who has made her return for more than an appearance. And Lex approaches her and says that, I know that you hate it, killing, because you're a good person. And she asks, am I? Kind of 
asking that question again of whether or not people can change. Well, but also going back to what you said about, you know, Lena and the book that she gave Kara and the idea of focus on what you're responsible for and what you can control versus other people Mm. saying, am I is also Eve saying, am I responsible for this or not? Like, I did it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's also true. Uh, But also, like, do I have control of whether or not I'm a good person? Mm. So we see Lex swoop in and in terms of our topic, disrupt Eve's cycle of killing, prompting her to actually actively pursue change. Uh, She says, I don't want to kill anymore. Mm. Well, and in seeing how Lex brings Eve over to his side, we actually get an insight into how he may seem halfway charming to strangers Hmm. who know nothing about him. (laughs) So that was fun in a way. And we also see that he uses his knowledge of her previous character in order to see how similar the Eve in our new Earth Prime is. And then he uses all of that information to predict how she'll behave based on what he does. And he emotionally manipulates her very smoothly from that point onward. He uses a whole big mix of persuasive tactics to get her to behave that he wants. He's almost like Spider who's woven this web and he wants her to just get like more stuck in it. So you see him kind of start off by saying, you know, she doesn't have to kill anyone, that he'll protect her as long as she, you know, comes and works with him. And then another tactic that he uses is he starts off by giving her what she thinks is a gift and then it turns out to be poison. And when she's like, oh my god, you said I don't have to kill anyone. He's like, oh, but you're not killing anyone. You're actually (laughs) avenging someone who hurt you and I'm not making you like shoot them or do anything bloody. Mm. It's just, you know, you got to pour a little bit of this wherever Um, and kind of you know starting with something that seems outrageous and then making it seem like it's less significant while still getting her to do the thing he wants her to do Mm. the other thing he does going back to what we were talking about before with scripts and people following rules about how conversations or relationships should play out he makes a lot of surface gestures that look like they demonstrate romantic affection in order to make Eve think he is sincere about his concern for her versus, you know, in reality, she's expendable to him. He could care less. And it's an illusion. And he waits until, like, the cruelest possible moment to shatter Mm. the illusion. Mm. But the way he goes about it is he makes all these very big, very visible gestures. He gets her a huge apartment. He says he gets, like, a security detail to sit and keep her mom company. Big, big things that might read as, you know, really caring and pro- about someone and protecting them. But they're just tools to win her loyalty and make her behave the way that he wants. Mm. It was also very striking because it made me think back to the way Lena would behave in relationships early on in like season two and three, where she would do the same kind of thing. She would spend lots of money on these very big, very visible gestures in a way of yeah. demonstrating her appreciation. Like Kara mm. did something thing and instead of sending like one bouquet of flowers she sends enough to fill the office so everyone knows they're from her or like (laughs) she wants James to do something for her so she bought him an entire designer suit (laughs) But seeing Lex here really illuminates what we were saying before, that Lena just has no idea how to interact with people in like a (laughs) halfway normal way. (laughs) It's like a a human learning how to have genuine emotional connection, learning from an automaton. See, that's why she and Brainy need to hang out more. They could (laughs) learn together. Aw, 
Yes. So you mentioned Lex kind of easing Eve into killing someone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and tying back into the topic, he uses a kind of cue. And I, I consider it a cue because I'm not sure that she'd have actually sought out the murderer of her father. Mm. Like and tracked him down to personally kill him had she not already been used to killing people regularly. So it's kind of like getting her back into old habits by using this opportunity and like masking the same thing as something different to trick her into doing it. And there's sort of a slippery slope of her going from not wanting to kill at all to you told me I wouldn't have to kill for a Leviathan ever again. <laughs> and she ends up essentially back in the same place that she started under the thumb of someone who wishes to control her. Plus, going further back to Earth-38, she's back to working for Lex without really wanting to. And as Lex says, oh, we're destined. Mm. Well, the other thing that's interesting is that he's taken away her connection to Lena, too, Mm. because that got in his way on Earth-38 a little Mm. bit. It's also to talk about Lex and habits and his personality. He decides... To tell Eve everything he's been doing and shatter the illusion. Mm. And he seems very confident that this will not backfire. So I guess we'll see if it does at any point. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, we'll see. And then we have Brainy, who Lex also tried to manipulate and succeeded for the most part in this episode. Yeah, Brainy is interesting to kind of go back to what I said at the start of the episode about the research that's been done on how predictable people can be based on just their daily habits and stuff. The idea of that 90% of what most people do can be predicted via mathematical equations sounds like such a Brainy thing. (laughs) Yeah. And um, if that's the case, then Brainy's been asking himself this question all season. Why can't he figure out what Lex is up to? Mm. And so he knows he's predicting. Predicting that the behavior will happen, Lex is going to do a thing. But what he can't figure out is the specifics of it. Hmm. So it goes back to this idea that we are very predictable in general in our day-to-day nature. Hmm. But in terms of getting the specifics of like, you're going to do this exact thing to manifest that quality, that part is a little trickier. And Brainy isn't identifying the problem in the right way to make the equation make sense is really what's happening right now. Because Brainy has said it, Kara and Alex have said it, Lex is up to something, but they haven't thought enough about who Lex is to figure out what's driving that behavior, who his real targets are. Hmm. Because they're looking at it as, you know, he's a bad guy. He's going to hurt lots of people. And it's like, yes, he's going to hurt lots of people. But why? (laughs) Yeah. What's the anger behind the anger, if you will, <laughs> in order to kind of figure out what he's doing? What kind <laughs> of horrible is he going to be? <laughs> exactly. Well, and it's funny because we saw last season that Red Daughter really had the read on him. Hmm. She understood exactly what motivated him and what kind of person he was. She said, you know, it's Lena. <laughs> she didn't say that he's angry, but he is upset because she is a threat to his narcissistic ego. And when she mentioned... <laughs> Lena and he got mad. <laughs> he surely did. That he was uh, red. Well, and he probably got doubly mad because he was seen through by a Kryptonian. Mm. <laughs> His second least favorite people. <laughs> yeah, so really the driving force behind a lot of what Lex is doing is getting back at Lena. It's also about getting back at Leviathan for making him look stupid. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then by extension, it's about Kara because Kara is part of why Lena is doing this to him, if you will. Hmm. 
So in terms of Brainy's dilemma regarding Lex, trusting him, it's interesting because it never quite becomes a habit for him, especially compared to like Lena, who is kind of falling more into a pattern of accepting what Lex tells her. Brainy's always uncomfortable with it, and it never appears to be like effortless (laughs) or his go-to instinct. No, and Lex definitely knows it. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) However, Brainy has formed a pattern of not going to the super family, to Carr and Alex and John and to Nia. He has sort of broken out of that, I'm going to call them first mentality, and partially on purpose, he's distanced himself emotionally from them. And he has to be cued into it by Lex. And we see that he's eager to do so to help them in this episode. But there is a level of distance that is kind of, to me, reminiscent of the scene with Kara and Lena, the first one. Mm. Like he's the somber version of himself that we've been seeing for a few episodes now. And he's not as animated as he was before. And when he enters the tower, we see, interestingly to me, Alex kind of cross her arms, which is a self-soothing and distancing move of like a bit of separation between you and the others in the room. So I think there's a recognition there that this brainy is a bit of a stranger to her. And if you think back to the Alex in Wonderland episode where he was acting like the old version of brainy in a very dramatic way, mm. I think that's on her mind. But he sticks around and ends up saving Supergirl's life with, like, problem solving with the team, which is more in line with how it used to go and how the routine used to play out with the super friends. And then after some time, there's, like, a spark kind of in the way that we saw with the Lena and Kara conversation, a moment of how it used to be. Mm. There's a spark of classic brainy and Alex and that dynamic when he says it's a Star Wars reference and, and she's like he gets so excited <laughs> yes and she's like I, I know I yeah <laughs> which was a very brainy being very literal about something pointing it out and then Alex having her very Alex reaction <laughs> there was another nice little moment of how people rely on their habits their patterns of association in moments of crisis in the scene with Kara, Alex, Kelly, and William in Kara's apartment. William shows up with a collection of comfort foods Mm. to offer as a way of demonstrating his sympathies for Kara and Alex losing their dad. Mostly Kara. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But you have first the idea of how most of us will associate certain comfort foods with emotional states because of habitual associations that we make. Kind of like the example that I talked about in real life earlier with like my professor having us bring food every week to class. But it's also a number of layers of William showing how he feels, kind of going back to what we talked about, like with the Lena and Kara scene, like how are they showing what they feel without saying the words? Yeah. So he comes in with this stack of various (laughs) baked goods, Mm -hmm. which is like already a win. (laughs) But number one, just the fact that he brought all that stuff, it shows that he was concerned, much like how when Kara gave him that excuse the one time he gave her something like really thoughtful Mm -hmm. in response. And you also see that it's not just a token thing, much like how Lena gives Kara a book that had value to her when dealing with the loss of her own mother. We have William explaining, like, he made all this food from scratch and he used recipes from his family. Mm. Again, connecting to this idea of, like, things that are comforting, things that are part of your life and are repetitive as a presence. 
So not only is he putting in like this time and this effort, he also made things that include Kara's favorite category of food, which is pie. <laughs> yes. And it also shows because, you know, Kara, one of their very first interactions was her giving him a hard time over his like sad, pathetic sandwich. Mm. This recognition that he understands Kara and food and <laughs> that she finds that comforting. Mm. So like that was a very cute little moment, especially with the way Kelly was like beaming in the background, like <laughs> yes. some proud mom. It was great. <laughs> they recognize what this is. <laughs> and the other thing about that scene in terms of habitual behavior and predicting people was we see that Kara has moved into the phase of coping with grief by surrounding herself with other people mm. and particularly the people that she trusts and that she cares about. And that that is very bound up in who she is as a person. If you think back to her family motto of that you are stronger together and with the people that you love. So it was a cute little scene. Yeah. It's a nice change of pace <laughs> from all the, uh, the Luther conspiring mm. that was going on elsewhere and people working in these very individual silos and feeling disconnected. You have this one moment of many people indulging, essentially, hmm. saying like, oh, everything's bad and I shouldn't. And it's like, well, yeah, you should. Why not? <laughs> but really just connecting and spending time together. A bright spot. <laughs> Literally and figuratively, because the lighting in that scene was considerably brighter. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Speaking of lighting, that wraps up our topic thoughts for the episode. We have some more generalized things to address such as Melissa Benoist's directorial debut. One of the things that stood out to me was that the scenes that were shot in Kara's apartment felt a little bit different. Like we saw some angles mm. of the apartment that they don't use very often with the way that everybody was seated and the perspective that it was taking of seeing Kara plus like who else was near her. Yeah. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. The other thing that I noticed was that the lighting in this episode was very consciously constructed. For instance, in the scenes with the Sun Eater, there were some nice warm effects that we don't always see, even in the CGI scenes in space and in the fortress, which is typically very blue. But then we also had the scene when Lex first came to Eve and Eve was wearing this like blue pink sequence dress. Mm. Oh, yeah. And the lighting that was coming in from the club area was blue and pink and had quite the stark, colorful contrast. And some of the scenes with Lex and Eve in his like work space was a little bit different than usual in terms of having like two colors, like a cool color and a warm color at play. Mm. So I thought that was interesting. Some of the shots were also almost <laughs> painterly. <laughs> So it was fun to see her take a crack at directing. I'm excited to see any future episodes that she'll direct to be able to maybe suss out a style and differences in terms of directors if we can do that. So that's exciting. Other things that are exciting to me. <laughs> the that was a very Luther. This was important to me specifically. Uh. Yes. Jeremiah's death is now a nice, like, concrete and permanent consequence of someone knowing that Kara is Supergirl. Mm -hmm. We talked about this a bunch in the 100th episode breakdown and how we don't often see things go terribly because someone finds out that Kara is Supergirl because they like to keep their cast intact. So the best thing for them to do was to kind of go through those alternate versions of reality where we could see that someone close to her died or everyone she knew died, etc. 
But here we have now someone who is going to remain dead and who was a family member. So it's a big deal and may offer some exciting opportunities for character work because he did die because Kara is Supergirl and because there was an enemy or two that Alex could have presumably stopped in some version of events to prevent his death. And she just went through this emotional journey of coming to the conclusion that she couldn't have done that. So it might be a future hurdle. Mm. Well, it's extra interesting considering that Alex already has it in her head that stopping Lex is her job. So <laughs> Yeah, specifically, yeah. <laughs> finding out his hand in all of that could be the tipping point there. Mm. <sighs> Maybe one day we'll have the Alex versus Lex fight we deserve. So as delightful as it is to spend time seeing John Cryer play Lex, and I think he does a great job with the character. Mm-hmm. I've had enough of the Luthers for one season. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's time. It's this, time. This season's just been weird in terms of pacing because of multiple factors. But the focus has felt like it's not on Kara in the way that maybe some previous seasons have been or on like Kara's inner journey. Mm-hmm. I do like, and you brought this up, that they've done a really good job of making Lex's ire at Kryptonian specific to Kara. Yeah. To justify his presence. Versus it being like, why isn't he attacking Clark? (laughs) Shouldn't he care more about that? Yeah. Well, but the other thing, too, is like this is the second season in a row where we've had a male big bad, if you will. And that really undercuts a lot of the more feminist things that the show has done, because then it becomes a lot of time devoted to like one female character interacting with male characters constantly. And there's less room to kind of explore the things that Melissa was talking about when she was discussing this episode, which is relationships of all sorts between female characters. Like, I think this may have gotten cut because there were actually photos of Lena in the Luther house in the present versus Lillian and Lex. But like, we haven't seen Lena and Lillian interact Hmm. a lot this season. And we've never had a full, like, all the Luthers and all the Danvers in one space for any of those or even mixed those dynamics up. Like season two, we had some really good Alex and Lillian tension there. And then Kara and Lena, Kara and Lex. We've never seen Alex and Lex go head to head. Mm -hmm. There's potential to do a lot more with the stories than what has been done. And that's been a little disappointing. Yeah. Other thing I will say, I could watch an entire little like mini webisode about Lex pretending to be a bartender and talking to people (laughs) and having to pretend he cares about their problems. Like the wig alone Uh, could sustain me for 10 minutes. Like I feel like it would end up with him not being able to take it. (laughs) Valid. I approve. (laughs) Tearing the wig off, you know. Speaking of things that we need more of, McGon came back in this episode. Which was such a fun surprise. Can you stay forever? <laughs> it was great to see her, like Jean, in the human looking form mm. in terms of representation. And like, because it's cool to see, I mean, the alien thing is probably better in world in terms of like embrace your identity and like who you are on the inside and stuff like that. But it's great to see two black superheroes standing in their suits next to each other for us as an audience. Mm-hmm. So that was really fun. Speaking of habits, they did the... Uh, the like forehead touch thing. Mm-hmm. That was really cute. Yeah. The other thing that I noticed, too, with Magan was at one point she was using her powers and they were actually manifesting with the colors that we associate with the green Martians as opposed to the white Martians. So that was a Ooh. nice little detail. Cool. I like it. So that's our companion episode for Deus Lex Machina. 
We will be back with another episode for next week. If you want to send us any comments or feedback or your thoughts on how this season has gone so far and what you're looking for in the wrap up to the season, feel free to send them to us at Supergirls Attic on Twitter, Tumblr, or Instagram. And thanks for listening.